Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Mindful Narcissist podcast. I'm your host, the Mindful Narcissist, and this episode is another one of our uh, soulmate chats. As discussed in the What is Love episode, one of the things that made us kind of surprising best friends is the fact that when we met, she was a super Jesus girl. Definitely closer to like the more stereotypical evangelical Jesus girl than she is now, although she has never been a stereotype. She's always been a lovely, unique butterfly. But I very much was not. Like, I'd definitely say I was significantly more bitter and anti-Jesus in general when we met. Now I'd say I'm mostly cool with him, just not with how a lot of people use him. But she has always been a bright light to me in terms of what it can mean to love Jesus and how that can truly be used to love others better instead of as a weapon. A common theme throughout our time knowing each other, throughout our whole lives really, which is something that I discussed in the relationship hierarchy episode where I read a piece that I wrote about her in our relationship. Anyway, that theme is that we've traveled on very parallel journeys during our whole lives. But because we are very different people, we've ended up with very different outcomes, but also like not that different. After sharing my own story of leaving the church I was raised in last week, I wanted to share a chat she and I had about her own journey of deconstruction within evangelical Christianity and just the many different things that that can mean. I think it's cool to see like kind of a flip side of my own journey from somebody that I love so much. I think she has the most wonderful way with words in general and she tells her story and has this whole conversation in the most beautiful way. And I feel particularly privileged that she's trusted me to put this out into the world and share it with you all. So here it goes. Okay, so another thing in which we have gone through like similar experiences-ish, mm -hmm. but come out with very, very different outcomes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> very different outcomes. Um, it's kind of, and I'd never considered calling it this until... You introduced me to the idea, but it is also kind of like, a, I feel like a hot topic right now yes. in Christianity in general. Um, the idea of deconstructing one's faith. Mm -hmm. So like, what does that mean for you? Like that concept? I think I might be in a place that's a little bit different than the general application, but I'm not super sure. Mm -hmm. But to define my understanding of the term is we, faith was presented to each of us as a full construct and it had a lot of details and beliefs and stances and things that were involved in that. And we just kind of, you know, we accepted Jesus, so we accepted the whole package. And a lot of folks are going through a place right now where they're struggling to square up with the way that evangelical churches are handling pretty much any element of um, modern life and what we're seeing. And there's some generational divides and there's some political divides. Like there's just some stuff kind of brewing around in the church right now. And so what it's caused is folks to take a step back and go, why do I believe what I believe? And instead of taking it as a whole package, taking it as individual elements and kind of looking at each element, determining one, its validity and whole, whole um, two, whether it's even scriptural, which is a whole last thing, but two, whether or not that's something that they can fully stand behind and whether it reflects their beliefs. And deconstruction, I think, is a very general word for a very personal process because each person was given a little bit of a different package, so we all have some things in common. Um, and each person is reacting to those things very differently and reacting to certain leaders very differently and different reactions, family reactions, stuff like that very differently. 
I think for me, uh, a lot of people's deconstruction ends with a step away from faith, which is valid and completely their choice. I, I don't blame them at all. And that's not really an option on the table for me because of where I work and the nature of the work that I do. And so I'm in a place where there's sort of a subsection of people that are deconstructing, where the goal is there has to be a faith left at the end of it too. And so how do we get, I, I work in organized ministry. I will keep it that vague, but these like, I can't just point at evangelical and be like, those are someone else's problems. Like this is definitely like my mess to clean up. Like I am employed to help clean up this mess. And so it is, it hits a little bit different for me. And so I am in a place where I am fully deconstructing a lot of major, major elements of how faith has been presented to me. But at the same time, I have to figure out how to reconstruct something that I can live with and that makes sense. And that is real. And so I think everybody ends a little bit differently. And I don't know if it's a process that ends really. It's sort of a, a spiritual practice, I'd say, of like not just taking things for granted and really exploring things for yourself and determining what you believe. I think the reason I would never, I'd never thought to refer to my own journey that way is because the, the maybe dismantling of faith yeah. felt more accurate yeah. in my case because it was a very like systematic process but at the end I was left with nothing mm -hmm. and that's fair <laughs> like there I don't know I think people approach it there's a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety right now about approaching your faith or deconstructing or questioning because in a lot of organized religious spaces of a variety of flavors questioning is not taken well. Personally, I believe that that is a symptom of unprepared and unequipped leaders. Hmm. And we need to be like, if we want people to handle questions well, we not being the people in congregations because it is not your problem. You should have been given a leader who was prepared for the, like, if you think you want to be a pastor and you're not ready for somebody to have this type of a crisis of faith and really be asking hard questions, let me just save you a lot of heartache for you and everyone involved. Don't do it. Being a pastor is not a glorious job and it's not what it used to be in the generations before us, I don't think. I don't even think it's really the questions that did it for me because like obviously the way the Mormon church is presented as being like the one true church, they still within it are like... Yeah, of course, you're allowed to ask questions, but at the same time, there's the caveat, like, doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Um, but I don't think that actually ever really bothered me. The process was more, when it came down to it, I don't even think it was particularly asking deep questions mm -hmm. in the very last stretch. It was just taking the beliefs one by one and being like, do I actually genuinely believe this? Right. And the answer for every single one was no. Right. I had been given a version of life where if I believed these things, things would be okay. Yeah. And so for that reason, I believed the things. Right. But when it came down to it, I was like, I don't, I don't. And they're making me miserable. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, I have a lot of, I have a whole rib cage of bones to pick with the way that we present faith, especially to young people. But I think we have this tendency and i think it definitely happened to you that we romanticize the outcomes we're like if you believe this and if you do these things and if you're just this enough 
everything's gonna work out, you're gonna get blessed. Like there's certain key phrases um, around that. And I think a lot of people are engaging with this process when one of those things proves to be false because it's the first verifiable thing that they know that they're like, well, that was a lie. Like, mm. whoa, what happened here? Yeah. And it was all, all the things that are like promised, I think, in Mormonism are things that are like meant to instill hope in you. And they instilled zero hope in you. And that just, that did not work for me, given my specific circumstances. No. It had the very opposite effect. And I think that's like the hardest thing for people to understand, yeah. actually. And the most surprising thing for people, because like, I think when you leave the Mormon church, generally it's expected mm -hmm. that you had some huge beef, because there's lots of drama with mormon history yeah and you know how it's biased who it's presented by the validity of any of it at all there's lots of like quote-unquote anti-mormon literature from people that leave the church because people that leave the church are generally very angry about it and they have a bone to pick and they want to spill the tea right. and i think it's most surprising to people when that is very much not my case no, I don't For think mine, it was like a dismantling and like, none of this serves me. Right. And a realization of that and like, why would I keep anything that does not serve me in any way and in fact does the opposite? Right. What was the moment or how did you come to the realization? Because I think a lot of people know that in their gut, in the way that they're interacting with their faith, but they don't know how to get to the place where they can either admit to themselves or admit to others like, hey this is causing me more harm than it is good. And I don't see how to continue unless one, it's gone or two, there's heavy modifications to it. Hmm. How did you get to that place? And how did you have enough peace, I guess, inside yourself to be able to communicate that to people? Hmm. I mean, I think the only, like the first time I was like, wait, maybe this could be different was like when I was with my high school boyfriend, I was like, oh, this person who's not Mormon seems to value me even though he doesn't care that I'm Mormon. Right. Like there is a value to me outside of being this good Mormon girl. And I was like, wait. And that kind of just started the whole process. Yeah. And I don't think I did actually articulate the process to anybody, which mm -hmm. is probably why it went over so poorly with so many of the people that I told. It was because none of that process was articulated. But at the same time, once you do articulate that. You're a target. Yeah, you end up in, you know, therapy with the bishop and not good therapy, like not, not <laughs> therapy therapy. That's not what she means. No, like, I don't want to say brainwashing, but like, I mean, you're just immediately, all efforts would be to bring you back in. Yeah. It's not to validate your experience or hear you at all. Or give you space. Or give you space. And I imagine that's how it would be in most types yes. of congregations. It's yes. like, once you articulate that this is how I'm feeling, it's like, oh, well, that's not how you're supposed to be feeling. Yes. Which, yeah, of course, that's not the intention of religion to make you feel that way. But that's arguable. not the way they say that. <laughs> but, yeah, like, I mean, I would argue that in some kinds of congregations where power is being abused, mm -hmm. then yes, religion is meant to make you feel inferior Absolutely. because then you have power over that person. But I will give benefit of the doubt that, you know, that was not intended to make me feel terrible my whole life. But like, that's really hard for people to be like, oh, but it has, and this is toxic to you. Right. Okay we'll let it go. And it's hard for people, like, if you're on the journey with still having faith at the end, mm -hmm. like, that is the end goal. It's also hard for people to conceive that there could be so many different kinds of faith. Yeah, yeah. 
Because you can choose, I imagine, like a faith that does serve you. Yeah. And I, I think what happened for me is I, I deeply believe in the God that was presented to me, not in the way he was presented to me or any of the things that were said about him, but in the way that he, I guess, showed up in my life or that I perceived that he showed up in my life. And so I was fortunate in the fact that I did not, like I grew up being raised to be Christian but I did not grow up regularly in church. And so some of the general, like every evangelical has those like a weird youth pastor stories. I don't have any of those um, because I didn't start regularly attending church until I was like 18, I think. And I regularly attended from like 18 to 25. And so I had a sense of God from before that point that had been kind of foundationally laid for me that did not rely on the like church narrative, I guess. And so I had something else to fall back on or like, an actual relationship that I had that wasn't just what my parents had or wasn't just like what had been presented to me. And so when people started getting real weird around me, I would be like, uh, this doesn't feel like how it used to feel or this doesn't feel right. Hmm. And I think as I stripped so much down, that never changed because that was never the issue for me. Like the fact that there was a creator and that he was cared for me and that, you know, he wanted to see me not be harmed. Like, I could always square with that. That was always cool. And so I held on to at least that piece, even as everything else, I'm like, I know this is wrong and I know this is wrong. Like, I think my ultimate place that I came to, the ultimate line that I drew in the sand was, I will not pursue faith at the cost of someone else's humanity. If you need me to dehumanize anyone, that is not I don't believe that that's authentic because I think the biggest challenge of faith in the way that I understand it is the quest to constantly and always humanize those around us, everyone, all of them. And I have, so I also had the benefit in college. Um, I had a job where I worked with people who were in prison and favorite job of my entire life. Um, I would rather go back and start working with felons again than, than work with pastors um, because felons are nicer sometimes. But in that and in the understanding of their story and understanding of their humanity and their dignity, you wanna know the fastest way to find, a, find out if you're gonna have issues with someone religious? Pick any majorly, majorly marginalized group. Incarcerated folks or trans folks or any, any folks who really suffer um, from intense marginalization. And if they cannot humanize those groups, peace out, my dude, peace out. That's I not- that's a good general rule for any human. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Especially, there was something especially powerful about seeing how people felt about felons, because how do you feel about people who have quote sinned? Like they are not worthy of, or they are not, I was in a conversation with somebody and this is when I knew I needed a GTFO out of where I was at. And they knew my history. They knew where I had worked and what my passions were and where I cared. And they were in this conversation. We were talking about COVID and this was in 2020. And they were talking about how nursing homes and prisons were having massive outbreaks and it was causing you know the numbers to rise and some major stuff to happen in the area that I lived in. And I commented on a post that they had made or like a, I DM'd off a story or something like that. And I was like, oh, I can totally explain, you know, some of the dynamics of probably what's going on in the prisons. And so she didn't really respond. And it came up in a conversation we were having later. And she, she goes very casually, very comfortably. Well, if I had to care about one of those two groups, obviously I care about nursing homes. 
And when I tell you that my entire stomach fell out of my ass, um, because that dichotomy was never required. We don't, we're not in a scarcity mentality where we can only humanize certain groups. And if we humanize everybody that what we, we don't have resources, like that doesn't make any sense to me. And that was like the first major breaking point that there were several along the process that I followed and what I went through. But that was the first one where I was like, wait a minute, like that could have been people that I love dearly, dearly. Um, and because of that love, it changes the way that I tolerate religious people and changes the way that I interact with faith. And I think that's the part that I do think is beautiful about faith is the the constant invitation when when faith is interpreted accurately and properly the invitation to deeply consider the humanity of those different than you and that's one of those like i think i broke the entire thing down and i'm trying to rebuild i'm not done rebuilding and i probably never will be but i broke it down and i started pulling in the things that i can truly believe are like truths or tenets or something that i'm like yes this is this is good and so so far i only have you know there is a god I believe he exists. I believe he's cool. Um, I think he and I are cool. And I believe that his ask of me is to deeply believe in the humanity of all around me. And I also don't think he has a huge tolerance for all this bullshit going on. And that's that's about as far as I've gotten in a year and a half of uh, reconstruction. Not a lot, but it's enough. Yeah. I feel like if you're going to keep faith, you have to really be able to like separate the way other people use it <laughs> from your own journey. Cause like, that's not, again, like when I left the church, that wasn't really an issue for me. I wasn't mm-hmm. thinking about that. That's become an issue for me yes. since leaving the church and is probably a major reason. It's, it's a major reason why I see no need. I'm like, I feel like I'm a good person and I don't have any of that. Mm-hmm. And there are so many people that as soon as you add that, it's just an excuse to be a really crappy person. Yeah. So I'm just like, I I see no need. <laughs> yeah. And the problem is that a lot of people looked at people who were deconstructing and very casually threw out the sentence of like, well, you know, people just get it wrong sometimes and don't be mad at God, be mad at people. And, you know, they're just misinterpreting him, blah, 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 to try to paper over people's very, very deep trauma. Yeah. And... I don't think they're necessarily incorrect. However, the fact that that statement 99% of the time is accompanied with zero action, zero desire to change anything. You're just supposed to swallow that and go, well, okay, well, I guess we should just keep going in the status quo. And I'm boggled by many of my peers and um, those in contemporary evangelical spaces on how we have divorced like thoughts and prayers, like that entire, how we all kind of make fun of like, oh yeah, thoughts and prayers, cause it's useless. Like the idea that faith does not require sustainable and intentional action. And that like God doesn't care about justice or God doesn't care about like character issues or integrity or like all these things. And so we're like, yeah, you know, well they didn't, you know, God's not wrong, people are just wrong. And so we're not trying to correct that. One of the other major things that is said to people who are deconstructing is that you are disrupting the unity of places. And the interesting thing about the call for unity in Christian spaces is that it is always mobilized against the person with less power in the situation or against the victim of abuse or against, you know, the congregant, not the pastor, because I have never heard the call for unity used to request that pastors, leaders, and people in authority 
deeply consider everything that they do in an effort not to harm or not to unnecessarily divide. You'll never hear it used that way. It is always against the people who are like, well, I think I need to leave or I think I want to go or I don't agree with this or you always will hear the calls for unity against them. And if I burn down one thing in my lifetime, that's what I want to burn down. I don't know if I'll ever get the opportunity, but that that is like what my purpose is right now or my feeling of of motivation is the idea that that to me is such an injustice and such a disappointment that I cannot go forward believing that God's not pissed every time he hears it. Like, truly <laughs> pissed. I mean, the whole unity, like, being used to activate the martyr complex, mm-hmm. which is intense. <laughs> yes. Oh, I feel like that... I think that is part of, like, Christianity, like, the martyr complex. Mm-hmm. Is it? Is it a very... I feel it's like a very American thing. Mm-hmm. A very American religious mm-hmm. thing. And anybody that threatens, anybody that threatens, like, church religion in any way, it's like, oop, enemy. Oh, yeah. Well, that and the idea of oppression. The American church is not oppressed. Period. End of sentence. End of story. There is no other argument. They are not oppressed. COVID regulations applying to churches is not oppression. You get tax benefits. You're not oppressed by the government. Please shut up and sit down. <laughs> Please shut up. And this was extraordinarily offensive, especially coming through COVID, because this was very much like a, a, a surge that came up through, through COVID of, of pastors feeling this way and, and vo- vocalizing this. And there is a subsection of us that were furious. Some of that subsection had international experience and had worked with churches in other nations. And they were like, you need to shut the fuck up and sit down. Please stop. Like, please stop. Because any, it is extraordinarily privileged to believe that as a white, straight, heteronormative, cis male who is evangelical Christian, that in any way you are experiencing organized political oppression. It just blows my mind. But it's also a very easy way to erase harm. And that's what I've seen it do. It doesn't matter if we're creating harm. It doesn't matter if we're spreading COVID. It doesn't matter if, you know, none of that matters. You can't tell me what to do. And that entire attitude is not an effective or accurate representation of how we're supposed to be acting. It's just, it's not, it's not. And I have seen the most atrocious behavior out of pastors in the last two years. And I think the martyr complex and the oppression complex and the willingness to manipulate the narrative Mm. is huge and none of that is what we are like called to do we are called to you know specific values and tenets of like humility and peacemaking and certain like and those are the things where i'm like i'm okay with religion requiring me to think twice about my actions and speak once and to require a discipline of me and require a higher level of character from me like I welcome that. I, I consented to choose to follow that particular paradigm of my life. And because I had the opportunity to actively consent to that lifestyle, um, I'm okay with, you know, loving my neighbor and thinking about myself, you know, thinking about how I'll affect other people and practicing hospitality and things like that, right? Um, and there's beautiful, beautiful practices and rituals and things involved in, in those practice, those spiritual practices. And so anytime you're seeing 
stuff come out of churches that does not breathe peace, patience, kindness, self-control. You know, it's like everybody who has ever been to um, youth group or kids church knows exactly what I'm talking about. And they're like, oh my God, here she goes. But like, we have talked certain things to death. Hmm. And it is something that all of us can recite. There's never been deep discipleship of like, how do these tenets of the faith that I profess show up in sustainable and daily ways in my life? Nobody talks about that. You'll get like a funny sermon or, you know, like something that kind of touches on it or like a motivational, like we should all try to be this way. And like, I don't know if anybody else has these experiences in evangelical spaces where the only time anybody talks about like patience and not being mean to people is traffic stories. Maybe that's <laughs> a California story. I don't know. But like- That might be a California thing. That might be a California thing. Okay. Let us know if that's only a California thing. But in California, the only time that I've really heard like any- indication of like any type of practice around patience or kindness or respect it was always about people cutting you off on the freeway <laughs> and that was the only like little action item that we were ever given other than that it's very abstraction is another word that i think is problematic because we have been given a faith that is extraordinarily abstract and so it has absolutely no bearing on you know it's very easy with an abstract understanding of, or an, a, when you're given an abstract look at faith and it's so like divorced from just these basic practical things where it's like, uh, how does any of this matter? Like, why is this important? It yeah. literally does absolutely nothing and it just kind of makes you act like a dick. Like the problem is that's a majority of what's being taught right now. Yeah. And I do appreciate kind of an individualized approach to faith because you know that acknowledges every person's individual experience and like the nuance of their experience and understanding but when it's also only put into practice in kind of an individual way right not that it's useless like it helps provide people with meaning in life but also it could be so much greater than that yeah if you're taking that and and I mean, I guess a lot of like really conservative right-wing religious people would say that they are putting their faith into action huh. in the way that they vote. So I actually had a conversation with somebody <laughs> that, because I'm just confused, deeply confused um, on how, I'm, I'm not confused at all. And I've actually spent a lot of time thinking about like the underlying issues and the reason that we ended up where we ended up and how evangelical Christianity factored into that. Like this was my entire 2020 angst experiment. <laughs> but I had a conversation with somebody right around the time that I was leaving and I was trying to explain that I was really struggling with like the political undertones of what was going on and what I felt like I was being asked to do and all this stuff. And she was like, oh, okay, but like, she honestly could not see a reason why I would have a moral question about voting for Trump at the time. And I just sat there in, and not even like, oh, I'm this and I'm that, like not that at all, just, could not understand why I would feel the way I did and wanted to know why I feel, felt the way that I did. You know, it was not aggressive. It was somebody that I was very close to at the time who knew me very well. And I realized, and this is another, I'm gonna have several words of things that I hate in evangelicalism. Uh, isolation is another one of those words. And I realized we are not getting the same information. We are not processing in the same way. And what they have done so effectively is made open shut issues. Killing babies is bad. And it's like, that's literally, she's like, well, there's a verse saying that we should not do anything to get in the way of the, the little children reaching Jesus. And this is the worst way to get in the way. So I don't see how anything else matters. 
And I sat there, I didn't know what to say because I was like, there are so many things wrong with this that I don't even, where do you start? Where do you start with that? <laughs> but she was so deeply comfortable never having interrogated or thought about whether or not what she was doing was right or actually God honoring. Somebody told her, hey, this is what we do. This is why, this is what we believe. This is how God feels about it. And she was like, cool. And did not question that and did not feel a reason to question that. And it broke my heart because I don't think she was intentionally trying to cause harm. However, I also believe one of the, I guess I've reconstructed more than I thought I did. <laughs> one of the other major reconstruction pieces that I've gotten is I need to examine everything that I do. Small, big, political, not political, stances, abstract, concrete, all of that. I need to deeply think about how it impacts all groups that it impacts. And there are always more than just myself, obviously. There is nothing I do that only impacts myself uh, because I'm married and I share a house with a person and another dog. So really there is not a single thing that I can do that does not have an impact on another human. And the idea that it's, it's a mindfulness, I think, and it's a discipline that we are called to foster in that, in my specific, I guess, brand of religious understanding. I don't know what to call myself right now. <laughs> um, and what freaked me out and deeply scared me was the lack of mindfulness. She had never interrogated that thought in her life. And I had spent a year tearing myself apart, trying to figure out how to navigate a very tense political religious space while working in ministry full-time. And that was very carefully and cautiously navigated, I think. And it helped that it was a pandemic and I had space and I needed space at that time. Like, I'm very grateful that I had the privacy and the, the space to just process on my own um, because I needed it. But there's something about the isolation and all of us who have ever been, you know, in church or in especially like youth group or that kind of young adults era of the cautioning of other friends or other influences or other people. And like, you always have to prioritize your church people over mm -hmm. everyone else. And I think you probably got the worst of that. Um, yours was a lot more intense than mine. Yeah. Do you want to talk about how isolation kind of impacted you or like the way that you saw it used in your context? I mean, you're at church all the time. Mm -hmm. Like you have, I mean, it used to be three hours, now it's two. We have like three hours on Sunday. And then once you get to like youth group age, you've got, well, even below then, you already had one activity a week where, you know, during the week you spend an evening with your church friends. So then when you got to youth group age, it was youth group. But then, you know, there are leadership positions and I was always in leadership positions. So I'd have, have meetings after church. I'd have extra meetings during the week to plan other activities. Then all summer you have various activities camps. and camps and stuff that you're going to. You've got retreats, you've got weekend activities over the school year. It's just, you're there all the time. And the expectation is that, you know, you're going to marry within the church. Yes. So you're really only supposed to be dating within the church. Yep. Chances are your whole family is in the church. Yep. Um, once you get into high school, you go to seminary every morning. So you start off your day with an hour plus with just other people in the church. And like, I went to seminary across the street from my high school. So we all walked over together and then like, we were all also friends. Mm -hmm. Like we were friends outside of church because we had been in pushed church. together for our entire lives. lives. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you end up with like, you know, an entirely Mormon friend group, an entirely Mormon family only dating Mormons that's just that is your entire 
world. And yes, you do interact with the outside world because probably you have a job that's not Mormon related, but you learn to value the Mormon's opinions the most. Mm -hmm. Or you're, you are cautioned, like, you know, be careful about the influence yep. of your non-Mormon friends. Make sure you're still only friends with people that, like, share your values, which, like, valid. It's good to have friends that share your values. But here, it's a very, very strict definition of that. Yeah. You're, of course, encouraged to drop friends that are, like, too not Mormon. Right. And you're always also trying to, like, convert your friends that aren't Mormon anyway. Right. Like, that's the mentality that you're placed in, is you're supposed to be always preaching the gospel with your life. And I don't know. Yeah, it's a very bubble. There's the bubble. You exist within a bubble. You said something interesting, and it's something I've wrestled. Another piece of reconstruction that I've wrestled with is the idea of preaching the gospel with your life. And I think what's interesting is if we told you when you signed up to be in any of these faith communities, we're like, here's the time commitments and here's what you have to do. And you can't really talk to these people. You can't really do this. You can't really do that. Why? Most people are going to be like, yeah, cool. You do you. And I'm going to do me over here. You'd be like, oh, is this a cult? Right. right. <laughs> and so I've been, I guess, thinking about that phrase and trying to take it as literally as I can. And I think the way that I feel called to live my life right now is in a series of sustainable practices. Because I was in a religious space where I looked around and I looked at everyone in leadership and I looked at everyone you know, who was around and I was like, would I ever want any of your lives? And my husband and I emphatically were like, no. I would, no, 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 no. This is not sustainable. This is not what we want. I can't do this. I had a chronic illness, like, no. And so, why is that considered or that intensity of religion considered a good witness if i don't want to live your life and we're supposed to preach the gospel with our lives and i don't want any not a single detail of your life would i like to to emulate because you are so intensely in this direction is that really doing what we think it's doing if there's no actual peace if you're always busy if you're always exhausted you're always stressed out is that actually a witness is it actually helpful? I don't think it is. Yeah. Like, on the one hand, like, because the way I view, like, my artistic practice mm -hmm. being very holistic and, like, I think every bit of life that I live is research that informs my practice. Yeah. But I guess that's different. Like, I don't, I don't think my life is my practice, but I think that my life is research that informs my practice. But still, like, the holistic nature of it. Yeah. Like, I get that. Like, religion tends to be a big part of your identity, so it makes sense that, you know, it would have a holistic place in your life but yeah it has to be something that's sustainable and it shouldn't be your whole identity because i yeah i want to subdivide here and this is something i think that a lot of people are struggling to subdivide and feel a lot of guilt around subdividing so let me uh cut this in half for you so there is the relationship you have with god if you're in a spiritual practice that believes in a god and that is one thing and that is fairly holistic and it, it just kind of integrates in everything you do, right? And then there is the actual ministry practices or the time you spend doing ministry. That is not the same. And what happens is that part of it, the second half of that becomes a full identity in which there is nothing else or it is so dominant that it overshadows everything else. And people conflate that as being as important and should have the place of the relationship with, with God or a creator, or, you know, the deity that you, that you worship. And that is very dangerous. And I, I work in ministry in a way that I see how a lot of people end their time in ministry. And 
the amount of burnout and the amount of moral failures and the amount of you know crash and burn situations because that cannot be sustained and it's so preventable like if you just had boundaries if you just realized that your family was more important than your job because it's a job and even in a volunteer role it is a role job or position you take on and we conflate that with because it's spiritual it should be the most important thing in my life and we destroy people and it's unexcusable like it's completely unexcusable yeah i think within like the mormon church there's the phrase they use every member a missionary uh and which i mean when you are actually on a mission that is your entire identity and your entire life which i think is very problematic like you're stripped of your name your elder last name sister last name like you are stripped of so much of your identity and that becomes your whole identity and i think that's very problematic because yeah. i know a lot of missionaries that like they go through serious mental health crises and like duh but then you know you come back from your mission or before going on your mission it's every member a missionary and it's like that idea that you're just always dialed on as if just being a person who has a relationship with god and a relationship with your spirituality is not ever enough like existing yeah. as yourself is not enough. Yeah. There is an element, and I don't think it's unique to Mormonism, but I think it is specifically intense in Mormonism of the idea that everywhere you go and everyone you talk like that's an opportunity. And there's a spectrum with which that can be applied. There's a spectrum to which, yeah, and we should always be open to care for, love, and nurture the people around us when it is appropriate. That's one end of that spectrum. That's fairly okay. And then there's the end of the spectrum of every member as a missionary. Every interaction you have with a non-believer has to be evangelizing. That idea kind of makes people not want to talk to you. It's a really ingenuine, disingenuine, yeah, whatever, um, way to interact with people, I think. Because yeah. if every person you meet is like somebody that you could save, or right. like I feel a lot of the time, like anybody who interacts with me from the church, not anybody, but Most again, people. a lot of the time, it's an opportunity to bring me back. Uh-huh. Which does not make me feel loved no. or welcome in a space or like you actually care about me at all no. as a human being. Like, I get the mentality there that, like, yes, you think that this is the best thing that can happen for anybody, and you are presenting that to me, and so you think you are presenting the best thing for me. But it just, it doesn't take into account my humanity, my experiences, yeah. my trauma in that area. Yeah. It just completely discounts all of that and puts a blanket solution over me and the rest of humanity, which is ridiculous. And common sense says that if that was going to work, it would have worked already. Yes. But there's also, the church is far, far, far overdue for the conversation of intent versus impact. I have seen horrors, horrific behavior justified by intent. Mm. It does not matter the impact. It does not matter the consequences or how that actually affects people. And I think that that is one of the most damaging ways that we can represent God to people it is one of the most disgusting like distortions of god that god only cares about you know that oh. was the weirdest scratch she's yeah yeah <laughs> three-legged scratch sorry focused <laughs> she had an injury on one leg and so she balances in really weird ways Hi, gotcha baby. we have a cute dog here yeah she's silent she doesn't make noises she really doesn't 
Um, but yeah, int intent versus impact. And the idea that if we intend something good, that that's enough and that's all we should be judged on and we cannot be held or cannot even acknowledge the consequences when it's harmful. And there are several major social issues that I don't need to say that I, this is, I mean, you know, you know, we have watched the impact. We watched the fallout. We watched the harm. Um, but it is in the more and more I've interrogated that particular dynamic, the more and more I found it absolutely everywhere. It's easy to identify in some of the key kind of social conversations or social issues of our time, but it is much harder to see in like church dynamics or in, you know, ministry decisions and stuff like that. And the more and more I began to interrogate that belief as a kind of practice that I'm seeing, it didn't start with the questions around what is appropriate. Mm -hmm. Let me just, it, that's not where it started. That's just how it showed up and how it then really kind of magnified. But I don't, I think if we, cause the whole church is like, half the church is going, hey, this is all going wrong. How do we stay relevant at all? And the other half of the church is like, that doesn't matter. We don't conform to the world. Relevance isn't important. They'll come to us, blah, 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 blah. Um, and that's the like major debate going on inside the church right now, yeah. which I think is hilarious because it's so like, what? Um, what do you mean? You can just harm people and then pretend like that it didn't happen and that you don't ever have to be aware of. I think the church is very afraid of change which I also find extraordinarily ironic because I don't think that we should be. That feels like a really weird thing to get hung up on, but we're very afraid of change and we're very afraid of anything not being in our control, which again is very ironic considering we're supposed to be like trusting a God who is supposedly like handling it. But that's definitely not the way we act. We preach it, but we don't act it. And I'm at a point where I'm not even willing to step foot in a church, even though I work um, in ministry because I cannot handle another layer of things being preached that are not acted. And I only want to see action. I only want to see action. Stop talking, shut up and do something. And if you're not willing to do anything, move aside. Thank you for coming along for another chat. You can still sign up anytime before the end of the month if you want to get in on January's issue of the Mindful Narcissist Zine. And as I announced last week on the podcast and will be announcing on Instagram today, this month I'm going to be offering a six-month bundle for anyone who might want a trial run of the zines or, you know, if you just prefer to get them all at once rather than monthly. I'll only be offering five of those bundles, so it's first come, first serve. One has already been claimed, so as of the time I'm recording this, there are four still available. I'm also going to open an option up to current Patreon subscribers. If you haven't been subscribed from the beginning and you want you can order issues you might have missed the bundle will be 35 us dollars plus shipping and you'll get six issues of the zine plus the mini intro zine the individual zines if you're already a patron will be six us dollars each plus shipping dm me if you're interested in either of those options and we'll talk shipping then and i'll be taking payment to reserve your zines via paypal or venmo you can also sign up to be a general patron if you just like the podcast and me and want to offer some support, um, but not receive a zine. Both tiers are €4.50 or US dollars, and the link is patreon.com forward slash the mindful narcissist. You can follow me at CaitlinW for daily mindful narcissist content and reminders and announcements about the podcast. 
As always, like, share, review, all that good stuff, and my DMs are always open. I'll see you next week for another chat. Mwah!